There are few passages in the Old Testament that speak so clearly of Christ's crucifixion as Psalm 22. This, this passage is incredible. It reminds us of Isaiah 53 in terms of how directly it predicts things that happened to Christ on the cross. And as far as the sheer number of specific references, this psalm probably tops every Old Testament passage. So this is the psalm of the crucifixion, but we want to read it rightly. So how does this psalm, which is so clearly about Jesus, also speak to David? This was written by David in his circumstances about a situation he was going through. We know that David didn't go anything through anything that was literally like these words, but he seems to be suffering, and he's in extreme suffering, and so he's depicting that suffering in a poetic way. And I think also David understood that there would have to be one who would come and suffer in a similar way in order to redeem his people. He understood the promises of Genesis 3.15, that there would become one who would crush the serpent, but it would also have his heel crushed. He understood, I think, the, the prophecies in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 about how this son of David would be wounded by the rods of men. So there's a lot of things I think David was aware of, and he probably even spoke better than he knew in this passage. But the depiction is of somebody who's being publicly shamed, who's being hung up to die, and is, and is being mocked by his enemies. And so David, in his own lament, points to that type of suffering poetically, and then he ends the psalm with amazing praise to God. So this is quite the psalm we see in Acts chapter 20. This is spoken of as prophecy. In Hebrews chapter 2, this is spoken of as prophecy. And some of the words of this psalm are literally said by Christ on the cross. So let's look at it. Let's start in, in the, the heading there, verse, verse 0, that is. It says, To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. So what is the doe of the dawn? It must have been the tune this was set to. So we don't know what that tune was. That's been lost in history. But that's what that heading means, so you're not confused. So he starts off in the first 10 verses, and he speaks of the distance of God. So that's Psalm 22, verses 1 to 10, the distance of God. It starts with this great lament, and there's just this visceral cry that really kind of stands out in all of Scripture. And notice how the first two verses are in the first person. He's speaking of himself and looking to himself. And that focus is going to shift in the following verses. Listen to verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? So he sees God as his God. He repeats it twice, my God, but he feels forsaken by God. He feels as if God is distant from him, and this is his fundamental problem. His fundamental problem is that God is distant from him in his suffering. We've seen this as such a big theme so far in the Psalms, the nearness of God, the closeness of God, that when God is with us, we have hope, but when he's distant, we have no hope. And here there's disorientation. God seems distant and inactive to David. And so he cries out this cry, which is, again, probably the most excruciating cry in Scripture. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the same words that are spoken by Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27, verse 46. And also it's it's repeated in Mark chapter 15, verse 34. So it's no surprise that Jesus would have taken these kinds of words on his lips on the cross because he was the picture of being forsaken by God. 
he was the picture of the one who, like David in the psalm, um, feels as if God is distant from him, as if God has turned away from him. When Jesus on the cross takes the curse for us, he becomes a curse for us and he receives the wrath of God. He is the ultimate picture of someone being forsaken. And so the, he references this psalm because it speaks perfectly to what he's going through. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the opening cry. And then look at verse 2. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. I, I, as I read that, I remember a conversation I had with somebody about taking God's name in vain and whether you could say the words, oh, my God, and not have them be taking God's name in vain. And while typically we use it as sort of a you know like a replacement for a curse word or just an exclamation, here he's not he's not taking God's name in vain. He's speaking to God. He's saying, "Oh God, why am I in this situation? Right, I'm crying out to you." That's what he's saying. So understand those words. He's speaking to God about his situation, and nothing is harder than this: feeling abandoned by God, feeling forsaken by God, and that's what he's wrestling with in this passage. And then he shifts to the second person and begins speaking to God. He uses the words you, right? He's speaking to God. Verse three, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So he's focusing on the holiness and the trustworthiness of God in this section. This is who God is. And I think he's speaking this way of God because he's going to, in the next verses, reference or kind of imply his own sin. So David is alone. David is, feels forsaken, and it's, it's heightened because David has probably sinned given the way he's going to speak about himself in a second. But, of course, Jesus was alone and abandoned and, and forsaken and exposed to the world, not because of his own failure, failures, but because of our sins that were placed on him. So, of course, there's a limit to how this applies to Jesus. So he goes from you, then he goes back to I, that, that first person reference in verse 6. So listen to the verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. So he calls himself a worm. And the idea here, I think, is it's speaking of his sinfulness. Clearly, a worm is something that is despised. It's disgusting. It's not a, a lovely creature. It's associated with decay and with filth. And in the Old Testament, often worms are associated with destruction. Um, so think of Jonah chapter 4, where Jonah, this worm comes and eats the plant that he's sitting next to. And Jonah curses Right, curses that. So the worm is something destructive, something filthy, something that is worthless. And so God, uh, David, as he looks at God and his holiness, he sees himself in his filth. So there seems to be here an admission that David is sinful. Verses 7 and 8, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So he's receiving the mockery of people and they're wagging their heads, right? As a, as a sign of mocking him or looking down on him. And this is true again of Jesus's crucifixion. We see the same kind of behavior in Matthew 27, 39, in Mark 15, 29, in Luke 25, 35. 
You can look those up on your own time. But what's happening is people are looking at Jesus and they're mocking him. They're saying, you claim to be this great teacher. You seem to be this great physician and healer. You claim to depend on God. And yet, look, look at you. You're despised. You're forsaken. You have nothing. So what they're saying is either David, and in Jesus' instance, Jesus, is a fraud, or the God they worship and claim to follow is a fraud. But either way, they're mocking the situation that they're in, and they're gloating over them. But then again, the psalmist David turns to God. He says in verse 9 and 10, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So he then he turns to the dependence he's had on God, and he goes to the earliest moment of his life, before his memory, right? But the earliest moments when he was in the womb and when he was nursing. And he's been, what he's saying here is that God has been watching over him since his birth and even before his birth. David has always been in dependence on God. His dependence on God and God being his God didn't start when David believed in God. It started way before that. God, he was dependent on God and receiving the care, the tender mercies of God from the earliest moments of his life. And the images here, right, of nursing and being in the womb are these intimate images. And the idea of closeness is so clear, right? There's that there's an intimate warmth of the womb and of nursing. And here David is saying, in those moments, you were with me and you were caring for me. And yet God doesn't seem to be caring for him now. This is confusing for David. He doesn't understand it. And while God is distant, the attacks of evil men are near. So we see the first first section was the distance of God. But the, the next section is verses 11 to 20, and that's the attacks of men. The attacks of men. Look at verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. So he repeats here his initial request, right? The problem at the beginning was that God had forsaken him. That's his fundamental problem. So here he's again pointing to that problem and saying, God, I need you near me. The only way this can be fixed is if God is close to him and he brings his blessing, his presence of blessing and of uh, provision and protection. Um, Trouble, on the other hand, is near. So, So God is far, but trouble is near. And so God is calling because he knows God's the only one who can help. And then he begins to use this animal imagery in the next few verses, the animal imagery to depict his enemies. He uses the picture of bulls and lions and dogs in that order. And then he's going to, in in the following verses, reverse that order. And he'll speak of dogs, lions, and bulls and how God delivers him from them. But look at verses 12 and 13. He says, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So the bulls of Bashan, just some historical and geographical context, Bashan is in the north of Israel. It's the area or around the area where we we know the Golan Heights are today. So it's this area of lush pasture land. Um, It's a beautiful region. And so the cows and the bulls of that land were known as being the biggest and the fattest and therefore the strongest. So he's saying these massive bulls are around me, right? These, the, the biggest and most fierce bulls 
and these lions are surrounding me. Verse 14, he says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. So he's poured out like water. And I think the idea here, um, Jim Hamilton is, was helpful on this. He pointed out that being poured out, when you pour out water, it's wasted, right? Once you pour something out on the ground, you can't gather it back up. And so the idea of being poured out is that it's being spilled and destroyed and wasted in this context. And so his life is being given away. He's all out of joint, right? His bones are being pulled. And again, this makes us think of the cross because of what literally happens on the cross. When you're hanging there from your hands, your shoulders are being pulled out of joint. Your body is being ripped apart in a sense. This, the stress on your, on your frame is intense. And then he says his heart is melting. And this also reminds us of what happens in crucifixion. Essentially, in, in crucifixion, your, the weight of your body crushes your lungs. Right? As you're hanging from your hands, your entire body is slumped down until you push from your legs and pull with your hands to, to open your lungs and get a breath. And so over the course of, of the hours that you're doing that, eventually your heart can give out. It can, it can in a sense, melt. Um, in Jesus' instance, we see that when he's pierced in the side, blood and water come out, which a lot of people argue that that points to some sort of bursting in the heart. So this is, in a sense, what's happening to Jesus on the cross as well. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So he's dried up, he's dehydrated, he's needy, right? And he doesn't have any strength left. And he's dried up, he says, like a potsherd. A potsherd was just a, a piece of a pot. If you go to an excavation in Israel today, it's very likely that you'll find a potsherd because they're so common, right? When I went to Jericho, found a potsherd, and, you know, it was about 4,000 years old, likely. It was not really that noteworthy. I don't know where it is today, but there's so many of them that are not that important. But a, a pot is dried up. That's, I mean, you take clay, you form a pot, and you cook it to dry it out. But then, you know, this, these clay pots were dry and they were dusty. And so to be dried up like that means that you are, you're incredibly dry. And then he says, you lay me in the dust of death. This phrase, dust of death, is really interesting because in Genesis chapter 2, we see the first promise of sin bringing death. God says, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. So sin brings death. And then in Genesis 3, we see that death means returning to the dust. Man was made from dust, and he returns to dust in his death. Look at Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So death means becoming dust. So this is the reality, is that he feels, he's going through a circumstance that even though he's not dead, he, this is a death-like experience, an extreme amount of suffering, where he believes his life is over. And in the case of Jesus Christ, his life was ended on the cross. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, again, here, you just can't miss the reference to the crucifixion where the hands and feet of Jesus were pierced. 
Did this ever happen to David? No. But it would happen to the descendant of David that fulfills this passage when Jesus' hands and his feet are pierced. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. So he's a spectacle to everyone. And this is what happened to Christ on the cross. He was displayed openly in his crucifixion so that people could gloat over him and mock him. And the enemies of Jesus, when he was on the cross, seemed to have won the day. That's what it seemed like. You know, people often talk about what the disciples were going through in the days after Christ's crucifixion. And that's a, it's an interesting thing, or the, you know, the full day and the parts of days. I wonder sometimes what the enemies of Christ were doing after his crucifixion, right? That Good Friday night and then that, that Sabbath day, I think it's very likely they were partying. They were rejoicing. They were feeling like their wickedness had finally won and they were going to be free to defeat God's power. And yet that's not what happened, right? Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So in David's case, right, they're dividing his clothing. So it's the idea of they're taking the shirt off my back. They're taking my last possessions and they're, they're, they're stealing it from me while I'm still alive. And of course, in the case of Christ, this again is literally fulfilled in the crucifixion. That Jesus, because he was this victim and therefore all his property belonged to the state of, of Rome, what little he had was taken by them. And Jesus didn't have much. He had essentially the clothes on his back. Verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. So again, for the third time, he's acknowledging this problem, which is that God is distant from him. And so he's asking God to be near to him. Don't be far off. Come to my aid. And then we see the last section in verses 21 to 30, which is the praise of the rescued. The praise of the rescued. Verse 21 Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So again, he here he actually seems to reverse it, right? So he's been asking for God to save him. And then there's a turning point. There's a declaration that God already has saved him, that there is salvation from God. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. So how this salvation happened, we don't know. We don't have the details in this psalm. But God's reversed his fortune, and now he's praising God for God's salvation. It's a stark turn. And he's turning and declaring who God is, God's character. Because when you've experienced the salvation of God, you have to turn around and praise him for that salvation. And one of the best ways we can do this today is to share the gospel message. If you've been saved from disaster by God, and the greatest disaster is a disaster of our own making, right? That we are sinful, that we are condemned, and that we need a savior. If you've been saved from that, turn and tell others about that. Be a person who shares the gospel with anyone who will hear it. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. So he turns to declare who God is, and then he's calling upon others to join him. When you've experienced God's salvation, you want others to praise God too. You can't help it. It overflows in your life. And of course, the work of Jesus and his vindications through his resurrection were all intended to increase the praise of people. Yes, to save us, 
but to save us for a purpose that we would declare his excellencies, that we would tell others that we would turn and give God the glory that he deserves. And so here the psalmist is encouraging others to join in this praise, this reason that we were created for. Let's get down to verse 26. He says, the, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. So those who were afflicted, they're also going to be satisfied. The psalmist is taking his situation and applying it to others and saying, if this has been true in my life, if I was forsaken, yet God delivered me, the same is going to be true of you. There's meant to be an application here, not just to Jesus and how he fulfilled this on the cross, but to us as well. And if anything, we can see this more clearly than David could, right? Because we see the vindication of God through suffering most clearly in the life of Jesus himself, that Jesus suffered, but God accomplished his purpose in the life of Jesus through that suffering, not in spite of it, but actually through it. And so there's hope for you in your affliction. You can have confidence that you will one day be rescued, that you will one day be filled to the full full by God. And there's even a hint of eternal life in this verse as well, right? He's hinting at, he's, at, he's praying that God, that they would, live forever. Their hearts would live forever. Verse 27, we see that this this praise and this reign of God expands to the entire earth. Verse 27 says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. So this salvation that God's going to bring is for the ends of the earth. I love that phrase because it always makes me think of where I live, on the far west coast of California, right? Which really is, I think, a great picture of the ends of the earth. If you look at how far we are here in California from Israel, from the original source of this promise of God, we're farther than Africa, right? We're farther than uh, Russia or China, all the places that we think of as being far away. We're one of the farthest places on earth, and yet here are the ends of the earth. We can proclaim God, and I can teach from his word and declare to you the same message that David gave so many thousands of years ago, the same message that was fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. The ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. God's going to have victory across this earth, and families of nations shall worship before you. So we we do missions, right, because we want to see people worship God. It reminds me of the, the same, famous saying of John Piper, where he says, missions exist because worship doesn't. So the reason why we go to the ends of the earth to proclaim God's name is so he can be worshiped as he deserves. People right now who should be worshiping God aren't, and God wants to remedy that, and so he sends us out on this mission. Verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. This really stands out. This should be one of those verses that you highlight in this passage because this has been a big theme in the surrounding chapters, right? I mean, from the, you know, a few ch- chapters back in the Psalms, we're seeing this theme of kingship. We saw it in a big way in, in Psalm 18. We're going to see it. We saw it, you know, we'll see it in Psalm 23. We'll see it in Psalm 24. There's a bunch of Psalms in this section that are about the kingship of God. And here it reminds us, that even though David is the king, even though he's the one with the crown on his head, he understands kingship belongs to the Lord. It's only God who can bring this victory. 
And so he in his suffering and in his sin has to look to a greater deliverance that's going to happen someday. God is the one who is the true king. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the, the, the world, excuse me, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. So the prosperous here, it's literally translated as the fat ones. So fatness back then wasn't a bad thing. It was seen as a sign of prosperity, right, of affluence, that you could afford to be fat or, I mean, probably just somewhat overweight in their in their view, right? We wouldn't even consider that fat probably. But there are those who have plenty, who have enough, who don't have to do hard manual labor. And so here, the, pro- the prosperous ones, the fat ones, will worship God. In our world today, often those who are, who are prosperous, who have plenty, they actually oppose God. Right now we see the wicked prospering, but there's going to be a day where prosperity and worshiping of God are going to go hand in hand. And those who have rejected God are going to receive nothing. And those who have worshiped God will receive everything that they need forever. Verse 30, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. So this promise, this victory extends not just around the world, but throughout generations. Future generations will understand what God has done, that that all this victory, that all this that we need has been done by God and by God alone. And that's when God gets the glory. That last phrase, you know, he has done it, obviously pointing to it's all been accomplished by God. Doesn't it remind you a little bit of Christ's last words on the cross when he says, it is finished? What he's saying is that God has accomplished his mission. It's done. It's over. It's final. And Jesus Christ was the one who does it. And so he deserves all the glory and all the praise goes to the Father for his infinite wisdom and his infinite, infinitely perfect plan. So David, as he's suffering, looks forward to the rescue of God and to his final victory. And this should be our orientation as well. There will be times where you will feel as if God is distant, where there's no proof around you that God is close to you right now, other than the promises of God in Scripture. And so remember this passage. Look to this passage. Remember that suffering, that the nearness of God, right, is the answer to our suffering. And that for those who trust in God, a final deliverance will come. It may not be in our timing, but it will be the right timing, the perfect timing, God's timing. So let's look to him and let's take joy that we know what this passage ultimately points to, which is the victory of Jesus Christ that's available for anyone who will trust in him.